0: You're listening to TASH Amplified, a podcast that seeks to transform research and experience concerning inclusion and equity for people with disabilities into solutions people can use in their everyday lives. Today we are talking with Professors Jenny Kurth and Andrea Rupar about their article Considerations in Placement Decisions for Students with Extensive Support Needs, an Analysis of LRE Statements, in the March 2019 issue of Research and Practice for Persons with Severe Disabilities. They examine a collection of individualized education programs to find out how decisions are made to remove students from the general classroom, when supplementary services are offered to keep them in the classroom, and when they are withheld. Professors Jenny Kurth and Andrea Rupert. Please introduce yourselves for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourselves, what your current work is, and what brought you to the field of disabilities.
1: My name is Jennifer Kurth. I'm an associate professor at the University of Kansas, and I have been working in the field of special education since, I think, 1998, which is shocking. As when I started as a paraprofessional and then was a teacher for about 10 years and then um, have now been at the university for a good number of years as well.
0: And what brought you to your current work?
1: Um, It was a a lucky coincidence in that when I was in college, I had to do an assignment and for some reason, uh, the assignment got me connected with this woman who's a special education teacher at the local school district and she had a daughter with um pretty significant support needs with intellectual disability and she had been uh working to get her daughter out of this um county run facility and into the public schools and her daughter unfortunately um passed away a few years later but Linda this woman had um, this really profound impact on me in terms of really introducing me to special education and introducing special education as a sort of social justice um, adventure and the importance of inclusive education and sort of strength-based thinking about students. And really because of her, um, my, my work has unfolded, I think, the way that it has, and she's been um, She was a person who I got to end uh, end up working with as a paraprofessional my first year out of college, and then um, I got to have her as a colleague for my first few years as a teacher as well.
0: And Andrea? Um,
2: My name is Andrea Rupar, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, I I got into the field of special education kind of oddly similar to Jenny and... 1998. Um, we have so many parallels in, <laughs> in our lives. And I just learned about another one. Um, but I, that actually, I wasn't working in special ed, but I was working with adults with developmental disabilities in college. And um, after college, I was a music major in undergrad. So after college, um, we moved to Seattle. And I got a job teaching music at an elementary school. Um, not certified as a teacher had no experience as a teacher um but in this school there were um kind of self-contained classes for kids with autism and they came to music with me too and that's where i kind of caught the bug for um like convergence of all the things that i was most interested in i loved working with the adults with disabilities and i continued to do that as i was work teaching music but then um, when these little kiddos with autism came to my music class and i started to Um, think about communication and um, how to integrate communication into their music um, class Uh, that's when I decided that I was much better suited to be a special education teacher so um, after I finished my masters I I taught in Chicago area for a couple of years including and my first job was teaching uh, at a self-contained school so a special education school everybody at the school was Uh, had a significant disability, and they started the school when they were three, and they were expected to stay at the school until they were 21. And I had learned about inclusion and thought about inclusive education from a theoretical standpoint, but I never realized uh, how important inclusive education was until I was in that school and I saw how the expectations for these kids um, were so diminished compared to kids who were uh, in more inclusive environments. And so actually it was that experience um, working in that self-contained school that um, fired me up for inclusive education. And so then I worked in an inclusive school for a few years before I went back to becoming a, a doing my doctorate and then getting to my current position. So that's my, um, that's my story. That's how I got into the field.
0: Terrific. So tell me about the study that the two of you and a few other collaborators have in the spring issue of research and practice for persons with severe disabilities
1: yeah i think you know andrea mentioned that we have these fun parallels in our lives and one of the the way that it got started is we met at a tash conference a couple years ago and we're like hey you're doing pretty neat stuff and we both wanted to um think about i think what some projects are we could do together And one of the things, we have a lot of ideas, and one of the things we uh, started with was this investigation of IEPs. And it kind of got started with some of our, you know, backgrounds and similar work we were doing where we got started looking at supplementary aids and services. And um, so we did some work with that. And then I think we were both also thinking, boy, we have a lot of really interesting data with these IEPs. And we would collected IEPs um, from six states across the country representing kids in grades K through 12. And, um, you know, I, I think both of us have mentioned we're interested in inclusive practices and understanding how students get access to those inclusive settings. And so we thought that looking at the LRE statements would be an interesting way to go about that. Um, And I know, I'll let you say next, Andrea, but I know for me, it kind of started that I had been doing research, um, trying to understand how and why students ended up where they were placed um, in a couple other studies. And I was only able to get this aggregate data from the reports to Congress on the implementation of IDEA. And it's interesting, but it doesn't give you any facts. or. Any details about who these kids are, you know, how those decisions were made, what inclusion looks like or does not look like for them, and so I thought it was a really great opportunity to take a look at those IEPs in more detail.
2: Yeah, the um, it also so looking at these LRE statements was interesting for me also because I um, have an interest in um, how individuals. Individually and collectively make decisions, especially about um, inclusive education for kids with significant disabilities. And so, looking at these LRE statements to me gave me an opportun- gave us an opportunity to um, kind of l- look at how people are rationalizing segregation um, and kind of give a window into their thought process or their um, justification for exclusion. Um, just because I'm, I'm always interested in kind of getting under the hood and trying to figure out why, why is this happening the way it's happening on a, on an individual level.
0: So, for people who don't know, could you explain what the LRE is and what role it plays in the IEP, and what you found about it in your study?
1: Great. So, I can get started, but Andrea, you might want to join in. Um, The LRE is one of the sort of key provisions of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and it's one of the sort of core principles of IDEA and I've pulled it up here so I can read it more carefully but it essentially says that to the maximum extent appropriate children with disabilities um, should be educated with children who are not disabled and that special classes, separate schooling, or other removal of children with disabilities from the regular education environment should only occur if the nature or severity of the disability is such that education in regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. And so a lot of, um, so every IEP team must make an LRE decision for each child, and so, when you look nationwide, there's 6 million students uh, with disabilities receiving special education services, meaning that this LRE decision, where students will receive their special education services, is made at least 6 million times a year. And so it's a pretty important and frequent um, you know, requirement for all IEP teams to make.
2: Every team um, and every individual on that team can decide for themselves what least restrictive environment means. So um, those decisions are supposed to be individually negotiated for each kid, um, but in reality they're, they're nested in a bigger social system. They're within the school, within people's own experiences, their self-efficacy, their interest in inclusive education, their you know moral, if they think it's morally imperative, um, their skill set, but also what's going on in the school, what's going on in the state uh, or in the district. So um, if you think about those, those individual LRE decisions that are made at least 6 million times a year, which is a lot of times, uh, and actually more, right? If you think of change of placements and things like that, it's gotta got be more than that. Uh, then, you know, in each one of those individual decisions is, is influenced by all of these different factors, um, some of which, um, are, are laid out. And some of which are kind of tacitly understood among team members. Mm So, um, by looking at these statements, we were really interested in trying to figure out what people are, um, how people are coming to these decisions that they do. Mm -hmm.
0: So in the course of your study, you identified five broad reasons why students with disabilities are removed from the general education classroom. Can you tell us about those five reasons? And and then you you break those down into further reasons underneath that. Could you tell people what those five reasons are and what those entail?
1: Sure. Um, One of the more common reasons were related to curricular and instructional factors. Um, And so when we were looking at these ADA IEPs, we, we located the LRE statements for each of them. And one of the interesting things that we found was that um, teams cited a need for students to receive specially designed instruction um, in a large number of the cases, I think it was 26. Um, so 26 out of the 88 IEPs said that they needed, students needed to have specially designed instruction. Other times they mentioned students needing of specific interventions, um, more intensive or individualized supports for classes. Um, that students needed specialized curriculum, or that they needed to be taught in small group settings. And one of the interesting things to us was that um, each of those curricular and instructional factors were used as justifications to remove students from general education settings. And so um, it was just kind of this... uh, discouraging uh, reading of IEPs to do to see that these teams, it felt like, were looking for reasons to take students out of general education setting and, and that they were using um, really bizarre, I guess, factors against students to justify their removal. And so, for example, that reliance on needing specially designed instruction was really problematic to us. Because IDEA says to receive special education services, you need to meet two criteria. You need to have a disability and you need to need specially designed instruction. And so the fact that these kids were eligible for special education services means they needed specially designed instruction. So the fact that that was a really important factor in removing (coughs) them from general education settings is enormously problematic to us. And we were also not at all convinced that these other things like needing small group instruction or um, needing more intensive instruction would in any way uh, validate a person's need to be removed from general education
2: setting, although that's 100% of the time what it was used for. Right, it's conflating the services with the place. So it's assuming that you cannot have intensive, individualized, direct instruction that happens in a general education classroom when we know that, that it's possible to do that. Um, th- it's conflating the idea that you can't have something that's special within a general education setting. Um, and it, so it's uh, it, it seemed to us that the teams um, were operating under this assumption, mm-hmm. that certain things that qualify you for special education in the first place just simply can't be provided uh, in a general education space
1: one of the other factors was environmental in that uh, some of the teams talked about a need for a continuum of services and so we saw that um, there were teams IEPs who reported that the student needs to leave general education to work on with a special education teacher Or needs to leave general education to receive speech and language services. Um, Those sorts of things which were again pretty problematic when you look at how IDEA has been written and interpreted. And there was this sort of overwhelming feeling uh, from reading these IEPs that teams felt that there was some sort of inadequacy of general education settings, that basically student needs could not be met in those settings and so something else was needed and that they were uh, keen on finding the something else for. For student
2: yeah and one of the most common things that we found um, in the environmental domain was um, just a basic statement that said that they need to leave <laughs> you know they need a different room um, they need to work in a special education environment they need a certain type of program um, and so again the logic is pretty um, flimsy I and mean, you say well why does he need to leave why why are you placing him in a special education classroom and they say because he needs to leave the general ed classroom <laughs> you know or because we have the special program that was part of it too so that teachers we have the intensive language blah 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 blah, blah classroom in the school so that's where he goes that's where he, he will be best served right. um, and again it's about the environment and not about the people or the supports or anything that's like really specific about what happens in that environment or how the environment is structured. Um, it's about the fact that there's an environment there.
1: Um, yeah. And then our third reason was around student characteristics. And this was, I guess the whole thing was kind of discouraging, so I can just stop saying that. Um, <laughs> But uh, the third sort of big bucket of rationales was related to student deficits in that um, yeah. there was uh, quotes such as, the student is functioning below grade level and requires direct one-on-one or small group instruction in order to address her needs. Or they were talking about student uh, problem behaviors as reasons to leave, so another sort of student characteristic. Um Six of them use the presence of a disability label to justify removal from general education. So because the student has a, uh, you know, educational label of intellectual disability, then they should not be taught in general education
2: setting. And they're gonna go to the life skills room.
1: They're gonna go exactly to that special room we have for, for these kinds of kids. Um, and then other things around student characteristics like needing breaks or needing specialized healthcare procedures. Um, Those sorts of things. So again, using um, what was interesting to me, I guess, thinking about it is that the environment was not good enough. The general education environment was not good enough. And then the students themselves were not good enough to be in that environment. And so you're kind of seeing all of these cards getting stacked against Mm -hmm. students, um, which I think leads to what we're finding nationally that students with the more significant support needs are overwhelmingly not taught in general education settings and it's because they're finding you know all of these reasons to exclude students and then our fourth reason was related to personnel factors um, meaning that it was mostly related to related services as so speech ot physical therapy um, that kids needed to leave general education setting to receive related services or that they needed to leave special education settings to work with special education teachers. And again, um, you start again kind of assembling all of these pieces and think the environment's not ready, the kids not ready, the adults are not ready, uh, or the adults cannot do it or they cannot teach in an inclusive way. And so um, it was, again, just like, oh, boy, (laughs) you know, this is pretty bleak.
2: Yeah, then the related services is I mean, I guess not surprising to me, knowing kind of how things look in schools oftentimes, but um, discouraging because related services are a big part of special education. A lot of kids, you know, especially with the, with more significant support needs, benefit from a lot of related services, and so if the IEP is stacked with related services, you know, then and the only place that a school provides any related services is in the OT office or the right. speech office. There's a lot of justification for exclusion there just by like this sort of happenstance of how people do things and, like you said, the person's the kid's needs or perceived mm-hmm. needs. Yeah. Um, and and I think too about how we we develop goals in the first place. If you think about like michael g and greco's work in coach and how those goals are developed um multidisciplinary goals and the idea is that you don't have an ot goal that's by itself you don't have a speech goal that's by itself you know but that's not how things are looking for these kids um it's still these very um these little egg crates of yeah of of iep goals that together mean Oh, he has to leave. He has to leave. Oh, he has to leave for that. And then our last one
1: was just uh, the fifth kind of rationale we came up with. It was really not a rationale, but just we had all of these problem statements is what we called them. That was just kind of like, well, these are weird. <laughs> you know, yeah. what, How do we make sense of them? And it was also just really troubling that the LRE statement is a required component of every IEP, yet in 19 of the IEPs we looked at, we could not find an LRE statement. So you think about the importance of communicating to families, to teachers, to students, to you know the whole IEP team, how special education services would be delivered. And in 19 of them, all of us, all six or seven of us could not find any statement about how and where the student would receive special education services. In other cases, we found statements that were identical, Um, so it looked like people had copied and pasted statements across IEPs and had not individualized them at all. Other cases, we found check marks that said, you know, for example, can the needs of the student be met in a less restrictive setting, yes or no, and that constituted the whole LRE statement. Um, Other times they were just not measurable and specific. And one was um, the student will be with his general education peers at all times, other than when he's pulled out for special education services or nursing services. So you're thinking about if I were a teacher implementing this IEP, how much time can I pull them out or should I pull them out for services? Um, And it's completely unclear. And so you can imagine the... Um, the implementation of this could vary dramatically and could be very different from what the IEP team imagined or what the parents are expecting or what the child is expecting. And, you know, that's that's a huge problem as well.
2: And there's some really like weird um, iterations of these non-specific goals and some, or not, not goals, um, LRE statements and some of which um, one of my doctoral students who's been working on this project, Katie McCabe, is um, really interrogated recently, um, Mm -hmm. and she has a paper coming out. um, Well, we all do get to be on her paper, but it's her paper. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Looking at these problem statements and some of the things that she's found are really interesting. So, for example, like words like as appropriate, right? Like who decides, you know, he'll be removed from the general education environment as appropriate. Or as needed, or he would access the sensory room as needed. You know, without a real recognition that a sensory room is an exclusionary environment, right? Like, in there's other ways to get your sensory needs met. Mm-hmm. But like, who decides what's appropriate, and when do they get to make that decision? Um, is left completely out of the statement um, or the, and, and and so it's totally unclear. The other thing that's interesting is the this use of passive voice. So Charlie will receive uh, uh, or Charlie will be removed from the general education environment when his behavior blah 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 who removes him like let's put the let's put the onus on somebody's like let's give the responsibility who's gonna decide um, when his behavior is not appropriate for the environment and what does appropriate mean um, when his learning, uh, Charlie will be removed when his learning distracts from others. Well, whose IEP is this? You know, <laughs> is it his IEP or is it is it the other kids? And who gets to decide when they're being distracted? Do the other kids get to decide? It sounds like that would, they would be the best people to tell you. Um, so, but then, uh, you know, it's really unclear how these types of decisions get made, um, mm-hmm. you know, every day. So those are kind of our next steps and some of the research we've been doing since.
0: So the two of you have a lot of data and a lot of numbers in here. But I think when you get down to some of your categorical statements, um, like the, when you look at the numbers, you can say, well, it's like two thirds that and one third that, and mm-hmm. um, you know, 60% this, 40% that, um, it, you can get lost in it. When you, when you start making categorical statements, the picture is really bleak. You know, right. Not a single one of these did that. Mm-hmm. Every single LRE statement we looked at omitted this. I um, mean, one of the—I think something you say that's a pretty significant indictment is you say, in fact, nearly every LRE statement can be characterized as a description of why students should be taught outside the general education setting. It seems like what you're saying is the original conception of the LRE is you need to justify exclusion. Right. Whereas what it's become is the reverse, like exclusion is the default and we'll justify the opposite. That's
1: right. That's that's exactly what I think I have walked away from this feeling like is that somehow this, um, you know, the implementation of IDEA somehow has really twisted and turned in terms of how things are being interpreted, and that we're no longer assuming that the default placement is the general education setting with supports and services and that we need to find ways to make that happen for all students. But instead, it's how what do we need to say to make it that this student should not be part of the general education classroom or environment? and how can we how can we uh, effectively, Paint this picture of a student as being too needy, too, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, um, to be a, a member of this general education classroom, and um, that to me was really the 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 most discouraging takeaway. Is just that it's the child's a problem, the teachers are a problem, the environment's a problem, and we don't know how
2: to say it. <laughs> you
1: know, we're just well, we're just, and here's oh, one. Here's yeah. why
2: I think one reason why. We, we could explore I'm just kind of talking off the cuff here but like when that law says um, when the law says the nature and severity of the child's disability blah 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 that that calls out severe yeah. disabilities as the reason why you can't exclude somebody like it mm-hmm. creates a category right there that says like oh but if he has a severe disability, I can just say the nature and severity of his disability makes it impossible for him to learn in the general environment you know, there you mm-hmm. go so it's yeah. like that wording is problematic and people i'm always interested in how people co-opt and Kate and jenny and i talk about this a lot she has to listen to me say this a lot but like how people co opt the language of the law to serve their own purposes and they'll even write phrases from idea like in an iep as like the justification for whatever they want to do mm-hmm. um, and so anyway that's one of them you know the nature and yeah. severity of his disability well, that puts the blame on him, first right. of all, and second of all, calls out kids with, who are perceived as having severe disabilities.
1: It all just feels enormously outdated, and uh, right. to me, at least, that we we've really been shifting. I think as a field, our definition of disability as being sort of existing in this mismatch between the environment and the student, and that if you have a good fit, you have your needs met with that environment. You're, you know, the manifestation of your disability is mitigated. And yet, you know, so, so we're, I think as a field moving to this place where we're looking at the importance of the environment more and more. And yet this kind of language in the IDEA and what we're seeing in these IEPs is just a hundred percent centering all of the, um, you know, all of the existence of disability within a a child, you know, a, a child. And that, is, um, that is not, should not be up to the child to figure out uh, you know, what their needs are, how, how, how they can be included, but we should really be thinking about as a field, how can we um, adjust the environment to meet the needs of the students within that environment. That's a place where we have a lot of power and a lot of capacity, yes. and it's just, I think, really underutilized right now.
2: And when when the statements say things like the um, he needs a structured environment or what are some of these ones, like the general education environment uh, is not appropriate, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, what are you doing to change the environment? It sounds like the environment is disabling him. So how is how can you make the environment less disabling? Mm -hmm. Um, And how on earth is the self-contained classroom that you want to send him to? less disabling than, than that. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's, anyway, it's like it's sort of the same thing as you're saying is at the end of the day, it's all about the fact that a kid has a, is labeled with a disability and he's labeled with a disability because the environment doesn't support his needs.
0: Yeah, so a lot of the, I mean, because you're, this is observational science, a lot of the paper is dedicated to documenting the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And the two of you write, no LRE justification statement in this analysis referred to supplementary aids and services, nor any discussion of how these were considered when making LRE decisions. And then towards the end of the paper, you do dedicate maybe a half a page to arguing back with these IEPs that you looked at. What would you say to these IEP teams who've said we can't provide the individualized attention in the classroom. We can't provide the level of curriculum uh, customization that the student needs in the general setting.
1: Well, I feel like that is, that's to me, I I, I guess I'll answer that first with a question of my own is what are the supports and, and you know services that are being provided in this general education or this set special education classroom and what about them is so special that it cannot be done inclusively because um, when you get back you know really down to the core of it there is this idea that there's a special place with special materials and special learning for special kids done by special teachers and you're like well what's so special about it and if it really is you know, really, really special. Why don't you teach us what that is so that we can have this person be part of their community, their community at school, the larger community that they live in. We need to know what's working for that child in that self-contained classroom so that we can use those strategies elsewhere. Um, I I would suspect, and I've, I've always found this to be the case, that there's really nothing that special that's happening. It's just that they're hoarding the materials and the people and the resources in those settings and that's so then the child has access to them in that special place. When you take those same supports out and you bring them to where the child is learning, you know, surprise, (laughs) they're gonna learn just as well in the general education setting. So what I would prefer people think about is rather than where's the place for set or you know where's the place where students will receive services. let's said think about what are the supports and services, the child needs, and I think that's what idea is asking teams to do by considering the supplementary aids and services that is. Uh, you know we underlined that as being part of the LRE statement. Um, but instead of thinking about what are the supports, we're, we're so used to now having this continuum of placement options and then just putting kids into places and not thinking about what the supports are within them. So if we imagine that there is no other place to go, um, you know, what are the supports that would be needed? And let's think about that and have a really robust discussion about those supports and how we can bring them where the child is learning and with the people they should be learning with. Uh, and i think that would help us really reimagine what our ieps could be like for students
2: i think though too there's a pretty um you know ableism is so endemic in in mm-hmm. our assumptions about what kids can or should be allowed to do you know get when they have a disability label when they exhibit disability characteristics in a particular environment that might be seen as clashing with the way that we want our perfect world to look. Mm-hmm. You know, the the blame goes to the kid. And I, and when teams want to make the decision to exclude a kid because they have a disability, um what I would like to ask them is, you know, what what's your what is your outcome that you would like to see for him? Um, where do you see this going for him? What you know? What are his strengths, and where and what possibilities do you see for him if you're if you're if right now you're sending him out of the classroom? Mm-hmm. Um, you know. So I think it's a fundamental like um, shift in a lot of people's minds that we're just not there yet in terms of understanding people with disabilities as people, kids with disabilities as being kids. um, Mm -hmm. People don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I feel like I'm painting a really bleak picture and I'm being really pessimistic, Um, but oftentimes I feel like when we dig underneath the surface of why people decide to exclude kids, it has a lot to do with those basic assumptions about ability. Mm And I think as Katie McCabe's paper talks about this need to maintain like homeostasis or like this perfect little utopia or this striving to have a utopic environment in a general education classroom as being this perfect little place where everybody does things the same way and everybody's above average, right? Like, (laughs) so, and and, anyway, um, and anybody who kind of disrupts that you
0: know, is, is the problem. Yeah. So maybe this question won't make the cut. I'm going to ask it for my own benefit. (laughs) Um, But I think that the two of you are talking about this already a lot. And I just want to ask you to maybe foreground it. Maybe it's maybe like a philosophical or a human psychological question, but what is it? What do you think it is that humans have this tendency to Think categorically, and then think those categories have to be organized spatially, like humans are like machine hardware, and we got to put like the metric thread in this bin and the <laughs> the English unit thread in this bin, and you know the three eighths go over there and the three quarters go over here, and the two millimeters go over there. What motivates or what is it in people's thinking that drives them to seclude like this?
2: I think it cleans up decision-making for people in some ways, like in their minds, right? Like it makes the, um, it makes the, out or the answer clear when, or, or appears to make the answer clear, um, even when really there is, I mean, every single decision in special education is ambiguous. There's a million different things that are coming into a person's decision, um, but, um, when someone has a good reason for it, like, they can, like, latch onto it and say, well, because he has autism, he needs the autism classroom, and he needs visual supports and structure, and, uh, he needs to sit in a car- study carol all day and do box tasks, because that's what you'd get for kids with autism, and that, that I know how to do, you mm-hmm. know, rather than, I don't know, this seems a little bit scarier to uh to kind of mix everybody throw everybody in the same pot and see what comes out. I don't know. I'm again, I'm just talking off the cuff. I don't know <laughs> if that's, yeah, that's if that makes great. sense or not.
1: I was thinking sort of a similar way is that you know we're asking people to make complex decisions in yes. complex environments and so mm-hmm. if you can do something to simplify life and say, okay, here's how I treat how I handle this, you know, how great. I handle, um, a person with uh, complex communication needs, I, I do this thing, or a person with autism gets this thing. It takes some of the decision, you know, the com- the complexity out and it helps people make faster decisions and maybe yes. more confident decisions, even if they're not really accurate. And, you know, you can't fault people for um, defaulting to what they know or, um, trying to trying to find the easy path but it's just not always the right path and so you know there has to be some degree as you know humans of comfort living in complexity and uh but i think all of us are always trying to find some way to 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 reduce that and it doesn't always work out very well
0: okay so two last questions uh you write that this is an installment in a larger project Yes. can you tell us about that larger project and what's next
1: do you want to start andrea or
2: yeah uh well so we've had a few different papers off of the same project so the ella paper, we have one about supplementary aids and services some are in press some are in revisions um i'm probably not thinking of all of the stuff right now but i know what's coming next so what's coming mm-hmm. next is we're looking at um this is my passion project, is looking at present levels of performance. Um, So how do teams characterize kids with disabilities? It's sort of like if you look at an IEP, it's like the preamble. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) here's the picture I'm going to paint for you of this very, very special child, and you hear all the special things about him, and it's almost like setting the stage for whatever decisions that they're going to make, they have to kind of, you have to go back to the present levels to justify those decisions. So, um, we're really interested in digging into the language of present levels of performance and how people characterize and create kids, almost, um, and paint this picture of of a kid in the IEP to justify Mm -hmm. their decisions. the other thing that's happening is i mentioned katie mccabe um has a paper that is about to be published we think it's about to be accepted um on um uh, she calls it cracks in the continuum and looking at how um kids uh how teams um, justify LRE, so she takes these LRE s- statements and she she drills down into them and looking how uh, teams kind of create cracks to allow kids to um, to to be segregated um, through their language and um, their conceptualizations of like what a school should be or what a classroom should be. Um, mm-hmm. So those are the two coming soon. Cracks in the Continuum is coming sooner than the present levels of performance, but they're both coming.
1: (laughs) We had also, so like the supplementary aids and services that Andrea mentioned, we had, that has been published, I think, in the Journal of Special Education. And we were just trying to do a descriptive study, kind of like this one, of what are supplementary aids and services for students with severe disabilities. Um, Congress defined a lot about the IEP, but they did not bother to define what supplementary aids and services were. And so we were thinking, well, how are teams interpreting this? They have to, they have to make these decisions at least 6 million times a year. What are they saying they are? Um, And so, you know, no surprise there, There was a lot of reliance on paraprofessionals as a supplementary aid and service. Um, And then sort of like the low hanging fruit, I would say in terms of uh, curricular accommodations and extra time and those sorts of things. The the other one that I I think we've done is the parent input statements. We were looking at. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Terrible. Um, Uh, Evidence (laughs) of parent input in developing the IEP. And so um, all IEPs have this small section dedicated to saying uh, to, to the parents to say, what do you want? What are your priorities in this IEP? and so we looked at those to see um, what parents were interested in and how how they characterized their child with a disability and what their priorities were Um, and i think we found there that there was more strengths-based language used around uh, from the parents although the parents were dramatically um, you know, undervoiced. I guess, in this, that there was all of the space and the IEPs um, that were completed usually by school team members in this little tiny section, you know, two or three sentences for parents. And so where I think when when Andrea gets the present levels um, analysis, or when we all do get the present (laughs) present (laughs) levels (laughs) uh, worked on, it'll be really interesting to compare that with what the parent's input was like. Um, And we're also working on looking at IEP goals, that has been another area that has been probably the more researched part of IEPs is to see what the goals look like for students. And so we've been curious to know what are the goals like for students with significant support needs and are there differences in goals based on where they receive special education services. So if they're taught in self-contained settings, do they have different types of goals than if they're taught in inclusive settings. And so. Uh, we're basically taking apart the IEP and just trying to see uh, what we can learn from these different sections and maybe um, if we still have the energy left there will be some sort of all together wrap up of what we learned from the whole IEP but we'll see
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh last question the where can people find out more so if you were a parent or perhaps a student who was self-directing their IEP and you objected to the level of seclusion. What are some things you should know? Are there some resources that are available? Where should you turn?
1: I think one of the first places would be the Parent Training Institute in your state. Um, There's a lot of great parent advocates there who will help make uh, some inroads in terms of what your options would be in terms of, um, you know, legal routes versus having you know getting the right people to come to your IEP meeting to help make some decisions. Um, I think being familiar with TASH is a great option there's nice information on our website about inclusive education the benefits of inclusive education that uh, parents might be able to take to IEP team meetings to discuss um, with the team members. The SWIFT website has similar sort of Research compiled around the benefits of inclusive education. It's hard. I think this is a really contested area, and that there's I, you know, I really think that by and large parents and children are supportive of inclusive education. It's all of us adults that get in the way. You know, the teachers that get in the way. And um, I know I need to do better in my teacher preparation, and probably my colleagues do too, of of presenting education, special education as a service that goes with the child and not as a special place where they have to go. And I think until we continue to get that more firmly in mind of our teachers, there's going to be a lot of parents who continue to have this struggle. And so, um, you know, hopefully we all, we keep attacking it, I guess, from all of those angles so that, uh, people get better and better information about how to, um, promote inclusive practices from every system level. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, well, thank you to the two of you for joining us for an hour to discuss your research. And uh, we look forward to the continuing results of this project. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to TASH Amplified. For more about the series, including show notes, links to articles discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit tash.org amplified. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and on your social networks. Today we discussed research from the March 2019 issue of Research and Practice for Persons with Severe Disabilities on Considerations and Placement Decisions for Students with Extensive Support Needs, an Analysis of LRE Statements. Current issues, as well as the complete archive of 40 years of RPSD, is one of the benefits of TASH membership. You can learn more about RPSD at the publisher website, journals.sagepub.com home slash RPS. TASH is a research and values-based advocacy association with an over 40-year record advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. TASH is a coalition that unites people with disabilities, researchers, educators, service providers, family members, and others in the cause of guaranteeing that people with disabilities are able to participate in all aspects of life. In addition to this podcast series, we offer our scholarly quarterly, Research and Practice for Persons with Severe Disabilities, a popular magazine, Connections, local chapters covering 18 states, a series of webinars and regional conferences, and our annual conference. The theme for our 2019 annual conference is Building Diverse and Inclusive Communities. The conference will be in Phoenix, Arizona from December 5th through 7th and will feature about 1,000 attendees and 300 presentations by researchers, self-advocates, family members, educators, agency personnel, and other experts and advocates. You can learn more and register for the conference at tash.org conference2019. You can receive updates from TASH on this podcast and our other activities by following us on Facebook or on Twitter at TASH Tweet. Music for TASH Amplified is an original composition and performance by Sunny Sephirotti, the co-director and autistic self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at www.themusicalautist.org. This has been a sample of the colleagues and conversations available through TASH. It is only because of the excellent work that our members do that we can bring you this information. For more resources such as this and to become a member, visit tash.org slash join. We'll hear from another outstanding advocate again in the near future.